You're listening to the Rocky Mountain Review for Tuesday, November 2nd, 2021. I'm Coda Babcock. And I'm Ellie Shannon. And you're tuned into 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. On today's show, I go over updates in campus news and discuss updates in local elections. After that, Eliza Drotar will update us on CSU's athletics. And then I speak to Nick Hyman from the city of Fort Collins about new asphalt art installations in the city. Then Coda tells us about national murder cases, and we hear from Anton Schindler about baseball lockdowns in his podcast, Painting the Corners with Anton Schindler. After that, I give new information on COVID-19 statistics. To conclude today's show, Coda explains some updates on technology with information on Facebook, Apple, and Tesla. Let's move right into campus and local news. This is Ellie Shannon with your Colorado State University Campus News. It is already November and we are in week 10 of our fall 2021 semester. CSU exceeded its record for students applying on college-free application days. Several universities and colleges participate in the free college application days, which span from October 19th to 25th. The number of applicants for CSU reached over 10,000, and 35% of those were from racially diverse students. Another 30% of applicants were first-generation students. Colorado Free Application Days is coordinated by the Colorado Department of Higher Education, and for more information, go to source.colostate.edu. The Associated Students of Colorado State University met on October 27th for their ninth meeting this semester. Piper Russell for The Collegian reports that Carter Reeder, the chief of staff, spoke on the Department of Academics projects. These projects include creating a database for class registration and a memorandum of understanding. This would take data from residence halls and RAs and apply it to other projects. Reeder also spoke about another project they are working on with the Department of Analytics of Learning and Teaching. This project will focus on trying to market and adapt another online database where students can upload test data and students' habits based on exam results. They also discussed Resolution 5106, which is the dedication to access for ASCSU. ASCSU seeks to improve their accessibility to all students, which includes sending out agendas and other documentation out two days in advance. For more news on this, visit thecollegian.com. On Thursday, October 28th, the American Association of University Professors at CSU hosted a panel of speakers who discussed unionization of CSU's campus. According to Cody Cook of the Collegian, the panel focused on the Public Workers' Collective Bargaining Bill, which has not been introduced to the state legislature yet, but would extend collective bargaining rights to all public employees in Colorado, including anyone employed by CSU. If the bill were to pass, any student that is employed by CSU has the right to join or form a union. With President Joyce McConnell making over half a million dollars a year, while campus workers sometimes make less than minimum wage, the panel says this may be a promising idea for CSU students. For more information on this, you should go to thecollegian.com and visit Cody Cook's column. Now on a local news. The election is tomorrow on November 2nd, and Larimer County is encouraging everyone to vote. With the ballot drop box located four miles from almost any voter, last-minute voters have until 7 p.m. on Tuesday to drop off any remaining ballots. 
For more information on voting, drop box locations, and even a voter guide, visit thecoloradoan.com. There is going to be a new Target store in Fort Collins, and the grand opening is going to be this Sunday. The store will be smaller than the other two that are on Fort Collins' south side, and the store will have a pharmacy, some groceries, and other beloved Target merchandise. Aside from Walmart, Target is the only other national general retailer in Fort Collins. If you are looking to find hours on the store or more information about its products, visit thecoloradoan.com. On November 1st, over 500 people gathered outside of the Fort Collins office of Larimer County Health Department to protest the concept of vaccine passports. Some participants even came from across state lines to listen and voice their concerns with others that have similar opinions on the COVID-19 vaccine and other mandates. Senators, representatives, and big conservative names spoke at the event. According to the Coloradoans Molly Bohannon, the protest was originally announced against the county's verified vaccine facility program, which was announced alongside the county's most recent indoor mask mandate. The voluntary program allowed businesses that required employees and customers to be vaccinated to ignore the mask mandate for indoor spaces, which has now been paused following community outcry. For more information on vaccine and mask mandates, please visit fcgov.com. Thanks for listening to my campus and local news updates for today. And thanks for listening to KCSU. This is Ellie Shannon on 90.5 FM. If you are a current CSU student and would like to be a part of KCSU FM, go to kcsufm.com backslash training to be a live DJ, podcaster, or reporter. This is 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. My name is Eliza Drotar, and this is your RMR Sports Report. In CSU football, there was a loss to Boise State this weekend, 28-19, losing in the last quarter with a Boise touchdown. Their next game is Saturday for the Border War against Wyoming. In women's soccer, the girls lost to Wyoming at their Border War, 1-3, with their goal by Ali Yoshida. This week, the team is competing in the Mountain West Championship Tournament, with their first match being against Utah State. In women's volleyball, the girls ended their seven-game winning streak with a loss to New Mexico, 3-1 in New Mexico. Kennedy Stanford led with 16 kills and 43 total attacks. Sierra Pritchard led with 37 assists. 
Sasha Colombo with four blocking assists, and Alexa Romeliotis with 17 digs, Pritchard giving her a hand with 11 digs. The team is still leading the Mountain West standings. Their next matches are on Thursday night against Nevada and Saturday night against San Jose State, both at Moby Arena. In cross country, the team competed in the Mountain West Conference event. The women placed third and the men placed fourth. They qualified for the NCAA Mountain Regional with the chance to compete in the NCAA Championship in Florida. In women's golf, the team placed third at the Colonel Wallenberg Ram Classic to end their fall season. In men's golf, the team placed 14th at the golf club in Georgia Collegiate. Their next match is this week in the St. Mary Invitational in Pebble Beach. In women's tennis, at the New Mexico Fall Invite, Buskova Mahajevec and Dalabona and Richerva both won their doubles games. Only one member from the CSU team did not win their singles match during the tournament. They will be heading to the ITA Fall Nationals this weekend. In women's swim and dive, the girls have won against Idaho State, University of Denver, Colorado School of Mines, and UMARY. If you are interested in student tickets, go to csuram.evenue.net to get tickets for basketball, football, volleyball, and more. My name is Eliza Drotar. This has been your RMR Sports Report. Today I'm joined by Nick. Is it Heyman or Hyman, actually? It's Nick Hyman. Okay. Today I'm joined by Nick Hyman, the Bikes Program Specialist for the City of Fort Collins, to talk about the city's first asphalt art installations. To start off with, can you explain why the city decided to fund the creation of these arts and the benefit it brings to the neighborhood these installations are put into? Yeah, Coda, thanks. It's nice to be with you. Um, This is a really exciting project. We've talked about installing asphalt art um, at many different points in time, um, but we've never quite found the traction internally to to get these off the ground. So um, in 2021, the spring of this year, we actually applied for a grant from the National Association of City Traffic Officials or NACTO in partnership with Bloomberg Philanthropies who funded uh, our proposal to install three asphalt art projects in the community um, with the intention of demonstrating a rapid response to address some of the disparities and inequities that were being experienced um, in our most historically marginalized communities. So the three locations that we've chosen now are intended to bring a new form of public art to um, our communities in the form of street murals or what we are calling asphalt art. Um, so our aim is to bring uh, increased accessibility to public art um, across the community and test the process now so that we can ultimately begin to consider scaling it up Um, for the general Fort Collins community to take advantage of um, closer proximity and a different style of public art. All right. And then how did the city come up with the idea to use streets as their canvas? That's a great question. So part of my role outside of um, being the project manager for Asphalt Art um, is to coordinate our Bike to Work Day and our um, open streets events. So with open streets, our aim is to close two to three miles of public streets um, so that we can uh, help people get creative with what they think are good uses for public space. So with open streets, we close 
the street, we bring in temporary programming. It's cool about asphalt art and something that I like about the program is it brings some longevity and, and semi-permanence to its transformation in the public speed, in the public street or the public realm. And so what our, what our goal at this point is, is to create a, a, a mural in different locations that highlight the cultural connections and the connections to people who live in the neighborhoods um, in a way to celebrate um, their contributions to our community um, and also bring in um, just a different kind of approach to, to celebrating the, the cultures and histories um, that are very much a part of our community. All right, and then this was a partnership between the city as well as two other local organizations. Can you talk about why this partnership is relevant to the goals of it? Yeah, that's a great question too. So we partnered with Bike for Collins, a local nonprofit organization that has that we have been working closely with for many years. Um, they advocate for safer streets for people uh, who, who ride bicycles and have also begun to um, think about how their role in community engagement can support some other initiatives. We also partnered with Mujeres de Calores, who, uh, it, which is an organization that's, that's doing a lot of work to raise awareness um, about um, women of color, Latino women, and their contributions to, to Fort Collins, as well as uh, providing um, additional resources and uh, in the form of, of learnings and, and other public art that, again, help to raise awareness of Hispanic and Latino connections um, to our community, those long, long-standing connections and uh, the contributions of our um, Hispanic community members. All right. And then can you go over the specific art installations locations and what was chosen to decorate these areas? Yeah. So we have three locations. We installed one last week on Romero Street and 10th Street in the Andersonville neighborhood. Um, Andersonville is part of the Tres Colonias neighborhoods um, with historic connections to the sugar beet industry. Um, and the mural on, on Romero Street features um, sugar beets as well as short hose, which were in, in instruments that um, many beat workers, pre predominantly um, um, Hispanic beat workers, were required to use the short hose, meaning they had to be on hands and knees um, for sometimes between eight and even 12 hours over the course of a summer day working in the sugar beet field. So the connection with this mural is to highlight the connection to the Tres Colonias and the relationship they've had to the sugar beet industry. Um, our mural that's going down this weekend, uh, in fact, we will start priming the surface tomorrow and we'll actually install the mural on Saturday, October 30th, um, is located on Hickory Street, uh, adjacent to Hickory Village and Softgold Park. And this mural features um, the silhouette of Frida Kahlo, it includes some um, roses and flowers and cactus um, and helps to, uh, and, and brings in some additional textures um, in the form of traditional Mexican fabric patterns and designs. Um, again, to highlight the connection to um, our Hispanic and Latino community members um, that live in this part of our community as well. And then our final street mural um, is planned for installation on Monday, November 8th at the intersection of Maple Street and Roosevelt Street. Um, near Putnam Elementary School, so just off of um, just off of Laporte Avenue, and that one is designed by a different artist named Brian Barrett, whereas the first two were designed by recent CSU grad uh, Luis Santa Cruz from 
CSU's visual arts program. And Brian Barrett, who designed the third mural, is a local tattoo artist uh, and bicycle ambassador. And his design um, brings in different colors like purples and yellows, um, purples, reds, um, and blues in a series of concentric circles. Um, so definitely a, a different type of design, but nevertheless, I think we've set the bar really high in Fort Collins for what asphalt art can look like in, in the future. Many other communities have done asphalt art. Um, Portland, Oregon and Boulder, Colorado have been two of our peer examples that we have connected with on various topics. Um, and I'm just really excited to see these three murals come to fruition and um, hopefully continue to roll the program out um, so that more people in the community can, can take a, a lead in driving the program. And then how do you think art installations like this um, really represents the city's values of accessibility and community engagement? That's a great question. So the city is, is really focused at this point um, on equity, um, equity in process and equity in outcomes, meaning that we recognize that there are disparities being experienced across our community. And um, we think that uh, a part of our role as, as the local government is to, to work to address our processes so that our outcomes are both um, equitable. And of course this takes time and it takes effort, but we're, we're on a really great track. And so I think that the concept of asphalt art really highlights um, equity in both process as well as outcome. Um, process in that what we've done is created a, a sub program within our asphalt art, art program called the paint pot. And the paint pot is intended to um, provide uh, financial resources for low-income communities who uh, can apply to have all the hard materials like paint and brushes and rollers and tarps and so on um, to actually be covered through public dollars um, in an effort to, to make sure that the cost of materials is not a barrier to community members um, to, to actually realize, I'm sorry about that, um, to recognize that that um, cost can be a barrier to, to community members um, taking the lead to, to design and implement street art of their own. Um, and so we hope to, to reduce some barriers to participation there. Um, and as far as, as the accessibility of public art, um, I'm not a part of our, of our Art in Public Places program, though I have had the, the opportunity to work closely with that team uh, in the development of this program. And um, what, what's very clear and apparent to me is that Art in Public Places really emphasizes accessibility to public art. When you look around our community, whether it's um, the transformer cabinets or uh, sidewalk pavers um, and many other examples, um, I think we've, we've long prioritized um, art and, and the people who create art and the story that art tells and tried to bring it right to where people are. And so we tried to take a very similar approach with asphalt art to ensure that we could formalize a program to bring art right to you know, parts of our community where people are always at, which is our public streets. And then how does the city plan to use this as this first set of installations to continue pushing for more art in public spaces? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, what the pandemic, and I think, I think we were beginning to think about this before the pandemic, but what the pandemic really highlighted is that um, we've, we've got it, we all have a need for safe, 
welcoming and inviting public spaces. And through the implementation of our asphalt art program, um, we worked to build a lot of consensus internally uh, so that the many internal city staff that had a part to play in this program felt comfortable with our approach to start with, knowing that as we move forward, we'll continue to refine the process um, to make it easier for community members to actually apply and have their idea realized. Um, and then also refine, um, re refi refine our funding mechanisms and, and uh, our, the other criteria that we applied to asphalt art so that we can slowly start to roll this out. Um, in Portland, for example, they introduced their, their equivalent to our asphalt art, art program in the 1990s. And um, at this point, I think they've got something like well over or close to, if not more than a hundred um, asphalt art projects across their community. And while that might seem like a lot, it's taken um, you know, three decades, four decades to, to get there. And um, we recognize that there's time. Um, we've, 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 we've got time until we start to see that volume. Um, but what we wanna do now, and of course, over the course of the winter is put our heads together internally as well as with our community partners and uh, community applicants with these first three projects to make sure that we hear from them as to what their challenges were with, with the process, what they found helpful, um, all in an effort to make sure that this program um, is accessible as it can be. And then you spoke on this a bit already, but how do initiatives like these really end up supporting local artists working in the community? That's a good question. So um, as, as part of my work with OpenStreets, um, we began to incorporate art and cultural activities into OpenStreets many years ago. And I worked with um, a dear colleague of mine who um, has since moved on to another community. Um, but one of, one of the perspectives that he brought was the need to support local artists. If we're going to be asking local artists, whether they're musicians or painters or any other type of artists to be a part of our events, then we ought to be considering um, a, a fair compensation for their involvement. And so as a part of this program, of course, our artists are being compensated um, for their time and energy. And we think that um, supporting local artists, you know, with, with a paycheck of sorts is, is something that with this program, um, we've got the resources to do, and so we should do it. I'm proud of the fact that um, we are integrating um, some, some, some great compensation um, for our artists and community members that are really taking a lead on this. Um, and while that may not necessarily, while we may not necessarily have such an integral role in projects in the future, we're certainly hoping that the model that we um, are working on now and that we'll refine over, this, over the winter um, continues to drive home the importance of, of using our you know, program dollars where appropriate to help to facilitate um, and compensate artists who were asking to, to come into our, you know, into our processes and to really help make our visions realities. And then if someone is interested in supporting um, future installations or helping out with the November 8th installation, how can they find out more about doing that? So um, 
We have intentionally not put much information onto a standalone webpage yet, but that will be coming. Um, so at this point, I would invite community members to visit our Engage portal at the City of Fort Collins. Um, I believe it's engage.fcgov.com. I could be wrong on that. Um, but through our Engage volunteer portal, we do have volunteer shifts available that community members can sign up for. Um, if community members happen to live in the vicinity of the two projects near Hickory Street and Soft Gold Park, and also near Putnam Elementary, we would certainly encourage um, community members to come out and see what this is about. If you're interested um, to grab a paintbrush, we'll make sure that happens. You can paint for as little or as long as you'd like, or you can just come see what the project um, is all about and, and kind of cheer us on from the sidelines. All right, do you have anything else to add about this project? This project has been, uh, I think, hands down my favorite project that I've had the privilege to be a part of um, for the ability to connect culture and art into our built environment with public streets um, and the opportunity to work with some incredible community members. Um, the folks from Bike Fort Collins, um, our artist Luis Santa Cruz and um, Brian Barrett to the community members who I've had some incredibly powerful conversations with. Um, I think that what I've learned through this process are, is going to translate into my other work and I, I can only see good things um, to come when um, we look to our community for their ideas and work to connect their ideas to resources to make those happen. I, I don't think we can go wrong um, when taking an approach like that. All right, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Support for KCSU comes from Munchies Supermarket. Munchies is located at the Campus West Shopping Area at 1501 West Elizabeth Street. Open weekdays from 7 a.m. to 12 a.m. and Fridays and Saturdays till 2 a.m. Munchies offers snacks and food, including restaurant JoJo's Colorado Barbecue, which is located inside. Beverage options include coffee, soft drinks, ices, and cappuccinos, along with smoking accessories and more. Learn more at MunchiesColorado.com. And we're back on the Rocky Mountain Review. I'm Coda Babcock, and this is National News Highlights for Tuesday, November 2nd. The prison system faces a shortage of staff members across the country. According to a team of writers at the Associated Press and the Marshall Project, prison employees testified to the Georgia State House of Representatives that the conditions of the prisons had become horrible. One officer claimed that he'd been assigned to handle 400 prisoners on his own. 
While AP says no one issue specifically is pushing prison employees out, former officers report low wages, difficult workloads, and health risks as some of the reasons they chose to leave. During the COVID-19 pandemic, prisons faced some of the worst outbreaks of COVID-19 in the country. University of Michigan economist Betsy Stevenson said, quote, By failing to protect prisoners from COVID, the criminal justice system not only created an unfair risk of severe illness and death for the incarcerated, but increased COVID risk to employees has undoubtedly contributed to staffing shortages, end quote. Some employees, including Texas officer Lance Lowry, only began questioning his job as a result of the pandemic. Lowry quit to become a trucker because he could no longer watch his friends and coworkers die of COVID. California Judge Peter J. Wilson ruled that drug companies cannot be held liable for the opioid epidemic. According to Brian Mann at National Public Radio, attorneys from various counties in California argued that several drug manufacturers, including Johnson & Johnson and Teva, used misleading information to boost prescription use. In Wilson's 41-page ruling, he said that there was not enough evidence to prove that this information directly led to a rise in addiction and or new illegal use of prescription opioid medications. If the drug companies were found liable for this, it's expected that the state would have ordered them to pay for public health programs and drug drug treatment programs in the state. Previously, other states also held companies like Johnson & Johnson accountable for the opioid epidemic, with Oklahoma ordering the company to pay $465 million in damages. Executives from Johnson & Johnson and other opioid-producing companies have signaled that they would be joining in on a multi-million dollar national settlement related to the crisis, and other states are joining in to hold these producers accountable. Robert Durst was indicted Monday in New York on murder charges. According to Jean Cesarez at CNN, Durst was previously the subject of HBO's docuseries The Jinx. The Westchester County Grand Jury charged him for a murder in connection with his former wife, Kathleen McCormick's Durst's death. Durst was found guilty by a court of murdering his friend Susan Behrman in in 2000 and was charged with first-degree murder. Behrman died just before she was expected to speak to investigators about Durst's missing wife. The McCormick-Durst family is expected to have a public statement sent out Wednesday. The case of McCormick-Durst's death, which which happened in 1982, was brought back to the court's attention after District Attorney Miriam Roca took office in January of this year. Oklahoma's Pardon and Parole Board recommended Monday that the governor remove Julius Jones from death row. According to Sean Murphy at the Associated Press, Jones continues to say he is innocent despite being charged with the murder of a suburban Oklahoma City businessman. The board voted 3-1 to that Oklahoma Governor Kevin Stitt grant Jones clemency after Jones testified to the board via video streaming. The board recommended that his sentence be commuted to life in prison with the, with the possibility for parole after several panel members agreed that they held doubts in the evidence presented in the case against Jones. While the board normally is made up of five, one, mom- one member chose not to vote due to a conflict of interest. The only person to vote against Jones's clemency came from a former prosecutor, Richard Smotherman, who thought Jones's testimony was dishonest and went against evidence and testimonies. Jones says he's framed by the murderer, who served as a prosecution witness. That's all for National News Highlights. I'm Coda Babcock, and you're listening to the Rocky Mountain Review on 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. If you missed any part of today's episode, be sure to check us out on Apple Podcasts or Spotify by searching KCSU News. If you want a synopsis of the episode along with streaming ability, you can also check us out at kcsufm.com news for the latest episodes.
Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to episode number 29 of Painting the Corners with Anton Schindler, brought to you by 90.5 KCSU. Now before we start, I'll do my weekly rundown of playoff baseball as it stands right now. The American League Divisional Series is all finished, with the Red Sox advancing over the Tampa Bay Rays three games to one, and the Astros making pretty easy work of the White Sox, winning the series three games to one as well. Both series saw a lot of fireworks as the Red Sox scored 26 runs to the Rays' 19 runs. The Astros, on the other hand, scored 31 runs and held the White Sox to just 18 runs. The NLDS, on the other hand, is in part still going, as the Giants and the Dodgers are going to their deciding Game 5 Thursday night. The Giants and Dodgers are so well matched that neither team could win two nights in a row. The Giants took Game 1 and Game 3, while the Dodgers took Game 2 and Game 4. So, we'll have to wait and see who takes Game 5. The Braves and Brewers series finished up on Tuesday, thanks to a clutch Freddie Freeman home run that put the Braves on top late in the ballgame. So, the Braves will play the winner of the Giants or Dodgers game in the NLCS, and the Astros will play the Red Sox in the ALCS. It's honestly impossible for me to make a prediction on which of these four teams will make the World Series because at the heart of it, all of these teams are terrifying. I mean, all of them are very capable of causing some heartache. Anyway, into the episode. Now, last week we talked about some controversial baseball. Bad games, bad umping, bad plays, and all that fun stuff. But this week, I want to talk about a few events that when they happened, were so bad that it actually turned away a lot of fans from the game of baseball. That's right, it's time to talk about strikes. Now before I dive into it, it's important to understand a few things. When a strike or a lockout happens, it usually calls for a vast cancellation of all Major League Baseball games. After these eight strikes, 1,737 regular season games have been canceled, including the entire 1994 postseason and the 1994 World Series. That's almost 11 seasons of baseball that was missed due to these lockouts. Now, I've talked to a lot of people about these lockouts and how they almost gave up on the MLB entirely especially after the turmoil between the MLB and its players from 1990 to 1995 that we'll get into later on in the episode. However, each one of these lockouts have some sort of silver lining and come out with resolutions both sides can agree on. Well, for the most part. The first strike happened in 1972, and like pretty much all of these strikes, had to deal with money. The strike occurred from April 1st to April 13th, 1972, and ended in an agreement between the owners and the players to increase the pension fund payments, so basically an increase in retirement funds, as well as adding salary arbitration to the collective bargaining agreement as a way of resolving these salary disputes without going to court over it. However, in this time, 86 games were canceled and were never made up as the league refused to pay the players for the time that they were on strike. Most teams lost out on six to eight games from their season, 
with the exception of the Houston Astros and the San Diego Padres, who missed nine games due to the strike. The strike had a massive effect on the playoffs, as it literally helped the Detroit Tigers win out over the Boston Red Sox to win the division. You see, the Tigers ended up playing one more game than the Red Sox, giving them an 86 win and 70 loss record. The Red Sox lost out on the division with an 85 win and 70 loss record as well. It wouldn't matter, however, as the Detroit Tigers would lose out to the Oakland Athletics in the American League Championship Series, but at the same time, the Red Sox lost by half a game. The 1973 lockout happened directly from the 1972 strike, but this time, no games were missed. You see, after the previous season, the owners and the Major League Baseball Players Association decided to lock the players out of spring training in early February as they worked towards an agreement on a three-year collective bargaining agreement that clearly defined the salary arbitration process that included deciding on a neutral party to decide between the players' salary requests and what the owners were offering them. Since it was done mostly over the offseason, the spring training schedule was just shortened and no regular season games were missed. The same happened again in 1976 as another lockdown shut the players out of spring training once again. This one was a bit of a strange case as it actually involved a rather keen eye from Marvin Miller who was an American baseball executive who served as the executive director of the Major League Baseball Players Association from 1966 to 1982. You see, Marvin found a weakness in MLB's reserve clause, which basically states that the rights to players were retained by the team upon the contract's expiration. Or, in other words, you couldn't sign with, for example, the Dodgers if you were already serving a contract with the Giants. This clause made it so that players had little leverage if they wanted to go to another team. I mean, they were basically bound to either negotiate a new contract to play another year for the same team, or to ask to be released or traded. They had no freedom to change teams unless they were given an unconditional release. That was the only way you could become a free agent back then. Now, baseball has officially abolished this clause, and it's for the most part, been replaced by just general free agency like we have today. The owners, angry of this development, locked their players out of spring training in March, but settled down in time for a full regular season. Just four years later, however, this idea of free agency found its way to the meeting rooms once again. Well, sort of. By this time, a few other smaller things had come up, causing the players to strike the final eight days of spring training in order to push the owners and the players' association into some sort of bargaining. And, for the most part, they got what they wanted. On May 23, 1980, a preliminary four-year agreement was signed, basically covering up these smaller issues, except for the big free agency issue. You see, players wanted some sort of free agent compensation, a sort of qualifying offer that was given to teams who had lost free agents for whatever reason. And let me just put it this way. 
They didn't finalize the agreement for this until a new agreement was formed in 2012. So what is that, 32 years between when this started and when this finally kind of ended? And this brings us into the first, like, really ugly strike. You see, 1981 rolled around, and the owners were still being as stubborn as they could possibly be, and the players were not ready to back down because they had already made so much progress. The main topic was primarily the free agent compensation, to which an agreement could not be reached. The owners decided to implement a plan that called for any team who signed a free agent to relinquish a roster player and a draft pick in return. Like, that's ridiculous. So, understandably, the MLB Players Association went on strike starting June 11th and didn't resume until August 10th. Due to this, playoff teams had to be decided by first half and second half division championships, I guess, quote-unquote, which led to a really, really messy and terrible end of the season. Let me put it into perspective for you. Since the playoffs weren't decided by overall records, but rather first and second half records, two of the best teams in baseball that year, the Cincinnati Reds and the St. Louis Cardinals, actually missed the playoffs. You see, the Reds had a 611 win percentage, and the Cardinals had a 578 win percentage. But in the second half of the season, both of the teams got second place in their division. The Cardinals ended up losing out on the playoffs to the Montreal Expos, who played one more game and finished with a 30-23 and record. The Cardinals finished with a 29-23 and record. So, even though they were the second best team in baseball, they missed the playoffs by half a game. The good news is, however, that the owners and the Players Association were able to make some sort of agreement on July 31st on a contract that would last through 1984. In that time, however, a total of 712 games had been missed, and probably many more fans with it. Four years later, in 1985, another stoppage occurred. This one only lasted two days, and the games were actually made up at the end of the season, so, you know, it didn't really matter. But this one was so short because this one made sense for both sides. You see, just two years before, the MLB signed a huge TV deal, which gave a lot of money to the league. So owners and the Players Association decided to increase the pension fund and the salary arbitration cap, which was discussed a few years earlier. But again, because of this, the owners grew unhappy. Now, due to this discussion, an argument broke out at the start of the season in 1990 over, yep, you guessed it, free agency and arbitration. You see, the Players Association wanted more just even sharing of the revenue, which directly led to an agreement that saw the minimum salary for a ball player rise from $68,000 to $100,000, which is good. And actually, as a side note, Ever since this agreement was reached, the minimum player salary for Major League Baseball has increased greatly, and pretty steadily. As of 2021, the average minimum salary is up to $570,500, so a bit of an improvement to what it was. 
The final strike that we'll talk about was quite possibly one of the worst from the fans' perspective, and you can definitely tell why. You see, this strike lasted from August 11th, 1994, and didn't end until April 25th, 1995. So, in other words, the strike started right before the really exciting baseball kicked in, leading up to the playoffs, and then ended a full month after the regular season would have typically started. Oh, goodness. I mean, there was no postseason. There was no pennant winners. No division titles, no World Series, no October baseball, nothing. And even after that, it just led to a longer winter with a shortened season on the other side. Instead of a 162-game season, only 144 games were played in 1995. It would have been a terrible time to be a baseball fan, and as it kind of showed, attendance at ballgames was down a lot. TV ratings were down a lot. And honestly, the worst part about this strike is that it was just over a labor dispute. You see, at the time, the financial situation for MLB was bad. I mean, absolutely terrible. So the owners of Major League Baseball teams collectively proposed a salary cap to their players. You see, ownership felt that these small market clubs would just fall by the wayside unless teams agreed to share local broadcasting revenues to increase the equity among the teams and enact a salary cap, a proposal that the players adamantly opposed. I mean, why would they take a cap so that they can only make so much money? It just doesn't really make a whole lot of sense for them. So, a new proposal came across that would guarantee $1 billion in salary and benefits, but the ownership proposal also would have forced clubs to fit their payrolls into a more evenly based structure. So, in other words, putting a cap on, like, teams, not only just their players, but teams. Salary arbitration would have been eliminated completely. Free agency would have begun after four years rather than six, and owners would have retained the right to keep a four- or a five-year player just by matching his best offer. So even if he wanted to leave, he couldn't. And, as you can imagine, this offer was very quickly rejected. On March 25, 1995, a U.S. District Court judge issued a preliminary order against the owners on March 31st putting an end to this kind of unfair labor practices that they were enforcing on the players. And basically, this order forced an agreement to be met once the current collective bargaining agreement had expired, so a new one could be worked out. However, a new one never was worked out, and it took until 2012 to figure it out, and only slightly. From 1995 to 2011, there were three tentative agreements that were signed in order to keep everyone happy enough until a real agreement was reached. And honestly, as it stands to this day, very few agreements have been, well, fully agreed on, and honestly, probably never will be. It's more to the point now, I feel, that owners and the players' associations just kind of find themselves at a general understanding 
and know that another strike or a lockout could really be detrimental to the future of teams, to the future of the league and baseball fans everywhere. And they're right. It'll be interesting to see the future for the MLB. That much is for sure. Hey there, I'm Abby from the Collegian at Rocky Mountain Student Media, and you're listening to 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. I'm Coda Babcock, and you're listening to COVID-19 updates for November 2nd. About 90% of students and employees at Colorado State University received at least one dose of a COVID-19 vaccine. The university reports nearly 4,000 cumulative cases of COVID-19 since May 2020, with nine new cases Monday. Larimer County reports a seven-day case rate of over 370 cases per 100,000 residents. 107 COVID-19 patients receive treatment in area hospitals, while local intensive care units report being at 107% utilization. This means that there is no space or staff remaining to treat new patients in critical condition in local hospitals. The county reports over 41,000 cases of COVID-19 and over 320 deaths in the community. Larimer County and the Centers for Disease Control report high levels of community transmission for COVID-19. Masks are required in all indoor public settings in the county, regardless of vaccination status. Larimer County recommends that in high transmission risk periods, residents take the following precautions. Get vaccinated as soon as possible if you are not already. Wear masks, including in private indoor spaces if members of another household are present. Be sure your mask has a snug fit and consider wearing a KN95 mask. Postpone all gatherings if possible, and if the event must occur, consider requiring all attendees to be vaccinated or limiting the number of invited households. If the event is indoors, consider moving it outdoors. Monitor your health and get tested for COVID-19 if you have any concerns over exposure or symptoms. The state of Colorado reports just under 748,000 cases of COVID-19 and over 8,500 deaths. The state administered a total of 7.8 million vaccines with 3.5 million Colorado residents fully vaccinated. 72% of the total Colorado population has been fully vaccinated against COVID-19. Nationally, the Centers for Disease Control reports just under 45.9 million cases of COVID-19 and over 743,000 deaths. 78% of the U.S. population over the age of 12 received at least one dose of a COVID-19 vaccine. Globally, over 5 million people are dead from COVID-19 complications. Information from today's segment comes from Colorado State University, Larimer County, the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment, and the Centers for Disease Control. That's all for COVID-19 updates. I'm Coda Babcock, and you're listening to the Rocky Mountain Review. I'm Coda Babcock, and this is Tech News for Tuesday. The Wall Street Journal reports that Apple is now working on a new feature for iOS that detects car crashes. According to Umar Shakir at The Verge, 
The feature is expected to roll out next year and follows the Google Pixel, which includes a feature in the personal safety app which has a similar detection feature. While many cars already have a crash detection feature including Subaru Starlink, Fiat Chrysler Uconnect, and GM OnStar, this new iPhone feature will allow those without smart features in their cars to get necessary medical help in accidents so long as their iPhone is in the car, either mounted to the dashboard or near their pocket. Apple previously tested a similar product, which struggled in terms of accuracy when it came to detecting car crashes. Frances Haugen, a former Facebook employee responsible for acting as a whistleblower for the company's safety practices, said she believes Mark Zuckerberg should step down. According to Claire Duffy at CNN, she said that in her opinion, the company would be stronger with a new chief executive officer. In an onstage interview at the Web Summit in Lisbon, he said, quote, I hope he can see that there's so much good he can do in the world, and maybe it's a chance for somebody else to take the reins, end quote. Haugen previously leaked thousands of internal documents from Facebook to a variety of organizations she believed would help point out the company's unethical practices, including the Wall Street Journal and the Securities and Exchange Commission. The documents are now known as the Facebook Papers and show the ways that misinformation was amplified on the platform because it was considered paid speech. Facebook, which changed its name to Meta recently, has been asked to testify to Congress on the issues of safety and misinformation on the platform. Tesla founder Elon Musk said he'll support solving the world's hunger crisis if the United Nations gives him exact instructions. According to Sean Keen at CNET, Musk said that he would sell his stock in Tesla and donate the proceeds directly to the UN's World Food Program if they provide math and other pieces of evidence on how his money would be used. Musk responded to a fact check on a CNN business article posted by Dr. Eli David. The original article quotes the director of the UN's WFP program as saying that 2% of Musk's wealth would completely solve world hunger. Musk responded, quote, If WFP can describe this on this Twitter thread exactly how $6 billion will solve world hunger, I will sell Tesla stock right now and do it, end quote. David Beasley, the director of the WFP, said, quote, $6 billion to to help 42 million people that are literally going to die if we don't reach them. It's not complicated. End quote. That's all for Tech News. I'm Koda Babcock, and now for the weather. Today was cold with rain showers and a high of 46 with a low of 35. Wednesday will warm up to a high of 58 and a low of 30 with partly cloudy skies and pretty slow winds. And Thursday, you can expect sunny skies and a high of 61 with a low of 38. And for Friday, you'll have to tune in this Thursday from 4 to 5 in the afternoon for the Rocky Mountain Review, only on 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. I'm Kata Babcock, and information comes from the Weather Channel. And that's all for today. We just wanted to thank Damien Castile for our amazing theme music that's playing right now. We'd like to thank our guests today, as well as Portia Cook, Thomas Taylor, Stephanie Keel, Stevie Jones, Hannah Copeland, Eric, Elliot Hutchinson, Eric Zhang, Brennan Cole, Lindsay Johnson, Eliza Droder, Samuel Bailey, Ben Haney, Ben Kruger, Anna Schwabi, Marie Tanksley, Dixon Lawson, Peter Walk, and the rest of the staff here at KCSU and Rocky Mountain Student Media. We couldn't do this without you. And I'd like to thank you, Coda. And I'd like to thank you, Allie. And we finally couldn't do this without you, dear listener. Thank you. And with that, we'll see you next time.